Welcome to Rex's Bible Minute. This is a weekly video podcast series where we talk about Jesus, Christianity, and anything along those lines. Uh, we're in a series right now where we're studying the letter to the Ephesian church, uh, and we're in week three right now. So if you've missed the other weeks, we're building on top of those. It's very much a sequential, build on top of the last week kind of series. So make sure you go back and check those out. But before we get into it, uh, I want to uh, just kind of do a quick recap. I know a lot of people are going to be lazy and like, I want to watch this video, but I'm not really going to go back and watch a 30-minute video and a 40-minute video or, or listen to the podcast. So I get it. Um, let me do a quick recap to kind of catch you up to speed on where we're at. Um, the first thing we always do when we, we do a recap is when we make sure everybody knows who wrote the letter, uh, who it was written to, and why it was written slash context kind of stuff that can influence the way we understand it. So it was written by Paul, who was writing in Rome while he was in prison awaiting trial before the emperor at the end of his life. Um, we think he probably survived this imprisonment, but was actually re-imprisoned later, and that was when he was finally executed. Uh, but he's writing uh, a letter to the churches in Asia. That's the audience. It's not necessarily to the church in Ephesus. We, we discussed how there, there's clues within the letter that show he doesn't use language that he would have used to the church in Ephesus because he knew them so well, and he spent so much time with this church. Uh, and so the, the letter is actually written as a circular a letter that was designed to be passed around to all the churches in, in the Roman province of Asia, modern-day Turkey. Uh, and so these are churches that he knew well or he knew of them, um, but he, he wanted to write a letter that was kind of a bird's-eye view for the faith, you know, kind of what Christianity is all about from 10 feet back kind of deal. Uh, and so he, he built this letter on top of the letter to the Colossian church, uh, which he wrote at the exact same time and mailed at the exact same time. Um, and so the, the Colossian letters is the, basically you can summarize it as the idea that Jesus was sufficient in all things, uh, you know, in, in salvation and accomplishing God's tasks in the world, everything, Jesus was sufficient. So with that understanding, he makes the arguments and, and propositions that he does in this letter. And it, it breaks down into two parts. The first part is that Jesus was God's tool to reunite a very divided universe and part two is the church is Jesus's tool for being his hands and feet to accomplish the task of reuniting a very divided universe, right? So that brings us to today's lesson, All right? So last week we looked at, he did the greeting thing, and then he sung a really long song, right? Verses uh, 3 through 14 are just Paul singing a song about the blessings that we have from God through what Jesus did. You know, it's, it's just, it's literally one long sentence in the original language. It's, it's, it's a song where he's just singing, like it's not laid out in any kind of logical or rhetorical order. It's, it's just a song of thanksgiving. And so that's where we pick up today in verse 15. And he starts a prayer, which is very typical of Paul when he writes a letter. He'll do a greeting, he'll do some blessings, and he'll, he'll pray for whoever he's writing to. And so starting in verse 15, he says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So he's introducing why he prays what he prays for the churches he's writing to. And he says, the reason I'm praying for you is because your faith in Jesus and your love towards the saints. Now, from that, those two simple verses, we see something that's, that's drastically important for churches to understand. And a lot of churches miss this. He's basically saying, I'm thankful for you guys. I'm so thankful for you guys because you get it right. 
you're faithful to Jesus and you show love to people. Right? That, that's what he says. He says you're, you're loyal to Christ. You, you stand up for what's right. You stand up for what's true. You don't compromise on the, the essentials. You know exactly what, what's right versus what's wrong, and you don't cross the line. And he says, and you also show love to your fellow man. You show kindness and compassion. You show the love that you received from God, and you give it to the world around you. You give it to people. And so it's 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 something that a lot of churches get wrong. And and we see it throughout history. And, and Paul is indicating here that 2,000 years ago, there were a lot of churches getting wrong. That's why he was so thankful that these churches didn't. You know, If you look at history, the, uh, examples like the Spanish Inquisition, where a group of men were, were so dedicated to, 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 to their understanding of Jesus's truth and being faithful to him that anybody they disagreed, they sought out and tortured until they changed their mind or died. You know, it, it, they, they separated the two. They tried to do one without the other. Uh, or the monks and the hermits of the Middle Ages in Europe, these, these guys a lot of times would abandon their families, their kids to go live the monastic life. Like, and a lot of times they became wealthy out of those monasteries were not poor. Yeah, they took vows of, of poverty, but they were living in a, a life in the monastery that was well above the families that they left behind and the poor in the streets. This, this was, you know, a, a completely abandoning love for your fellow man for the sake of devotion to Jesus. Like it, you can't separate the two. And, and we see it even in today's world with groups like the Westboro Baptist wh- wh- who overemphasize their understanding of truth, which I would vehemently disagree with. Uh, and they, they, they spread the message of this, the truth with, through hate. Like you just, the two cannot be separated. And the opposite is true as well. You know, a lot of mainline denominations, and before I get attacked, I was raised in one of those mainline denominations. They're full of good Christian people who stand up for what's right and, and also show love. Uh, but, but the organizations, they've, they've drifted towards emphasizing love at the, for, at the sake of truth is maybe the right way to say it, but they, they forsake standing up for what's right and knowing exactly where Jesus said, don't cross this line. Uh, they, they, they cross that line in the name of loving people, which you can't do either. You have to have both. They have to, to go together, loving people and, and standing up for what Jesus said you have to stand up for. You cannot sacrifice either one of them. You know, and, and a lot of people, you know, they, they, they want either one or the other. They either want just love and they don't want to deal with the, the things they don't like, you know, the, the truths that are hard to swallow or they... They want to, uh, they, they want to be, you know, just enough religion to, to hate people, but not enough to actually love one another, which that's actually a quote from Jonathan Swift. And you might think like, you know, is that like Taylor Swift's brother who said it a couple years ago? No, this is Jonathan Swift who said that in 1711, right? This attitude, this problem is nothing new. It's something that has been pervasive throughout the church's history. And so Paul gives this reason that he is thankful that these churches get it right. They do both. They don't try to separate either one. That they love people, but they stand up for truth. And so he prays for them. And that's that's the bulk of what we're looking at today. Starting in verse 17, let's read the whole prayer. So 17 through 19, he says, He prays for them that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the work of his great might? So let me, let me simplify that. I, I know a lot of times when I read passages like this, it, it's one complete thought, but it's such a long thought that I get lost, you know, trying to understand it. So I've kind of broken this down in a way that makes me understand it. Hopefully it helps you understand it. Um, well, basically, Paul is praying for the church to, number one, have wisdom and knowledge of God, to, number two, to have an understanding of that knowledge and wisdom of God, and he's praying that they have that understanding of the knowledge and wisdom of God so that they can really grasp the hope that they have through what Jesus has done and so that they can really grasp the power that God used for the church and is using through the church. So let's break down each one of those points real quick. All right, the first one that he's praying for them to have wisdom and the knowledge of God, the revealed knowledge of God. It says that the Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him. So that first word, a spirit of wisdom. Wisdom, it's it's a word that that we kind of take for granted. We think somebody's wise, but we, you know, we have you ever studied and asked what does wisdom actually actually mean? Well, it basically, the the word was was used uh, two thousand years ago. It's used before that in classical Greece, Greek Greece as well. And the word is Sophia, Sophias. Um, and basically, if we want to understand what this word means, we kind of need to look at what the people who used it intended it to mean. So Aristotle, looking at the classical Greek view of it, he said that, that Sophia is a, is a knowledge of the most precious things. And then Cicero, or Cicero, however you want to pronounce it, uh, he's, a, he's a Roman uh, understanding of it. He says that knowledge of, that, that Sophia is the knowledge of things, both human and divine. And so it's a word that indicates a searching intellect, somebody who is, who is searching for the deep things in life. And, and so in our context, Paul is saying that he, he prays that the church, has, the, the church has an appetite for searching for the deep things of God, that they're hungry for it. And then he follows the request for, for a spirit of wisdom with a revelation of the knowledge of God which we talked about last week. This is this is another mystery. Paul is asking that a mystery be revealed, that this mystery of the knowledge of God, that, that, that God would reveal himself and information and knowledge about himself to the church. In other words, he's basically saying, he prays that the church be full of thinkers and learners, that, that the church not be full of people who are just kind of blindly accepting everything, but people who actually pursue truth, who pursue more knowledge, pursue further understanding of their faith. Plato famously said, an unexamined life is not worth living. Well, the, the, the same is true of faith. An unexamined faith is not worth having. If you haven't examined what you believe and why you believe it, you're probably stagnant. And stagnant faith is dying faith. There's no such thing as stagnant faith. You either are growing in it or you're a dying in it. You can't just stay the same. If you're the same today as you were a year ago, you're dying in your faith. You're not growing the way you're supposed to do. You're not growing as God would have you grow. And so we must pursue growing our knowledge of God, testing what we believe, making sure we understand it fully. If something becomes stale or you're questioning why do I believe this or you don't understand why you believe it, it's time to dig into it. 
the, the things of God are the most important things that we can know. And so it's, it's vital that we are intentional about being learners and, and being seekers of, of this knowledge of God. You know, and it's also something that, that the church, the early church, took very seriously. Like this is something that they, they took to heart. They were the first ones to really adopt codexes, which was an early form of a book because codexes were easier to transport and they were easier to make versus a scroll, you know, the typical parchment of the day, you roll it up, well, then you've got to carry it in a way that it doesn't get flattened. And so it would, you know, if it got creased, well, then it would wear out quicker and, you know, it wouldn't lay flat, you know, whereas a, a codex or a book, you know, it's you stack them together, you can put them in a bag, you can put them in a box and, you know, you don't worry about them getting compressed because they're pieces of parchment. Uh, and so it was much easier to, to, to transport and distribute codexes and books than it was scrolls. And Christians knew that. The early Christians adopted that and went full force into, into using codexes to distribute these, these truths and these letters and these writings so that the, the people of the church could be learners and thinkers and, and understand what, what Paul and the apostles and Jesus had taught them. So God prays that they, they, they have this spirit of wisdom and this revealed knowledge of God. And then he follows that up with, with the logical thing that goes with a mystery. You know, he says that, that he prays that they have an understanding of this wisdom and knowledge. He uses the phrase, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. It's kind of a weird way of saying it, don't you think? But it's very beautiful that the eyes of your heart be enlightened so that you would have understanding of these things. You know, last week we said that a biblical mystery, it, it, it has two parts. The, the first is that a biblical mystery, you know, a mystery of God, it's not just that it's in the Bible. It, it's a, something that has to be revealed by God. It's not something that can be just dug up and discovered or logically, you know, happened upon. It, it has to be something that was revealed by God. But once it's revealed, the only way to truly understand it is to be initiated into it, to be a part of it. That's why the cross and Christ and, and everything about Christianity looks like foolishness to the outside world. Once you're a part of it and you, you're initiated into it and you understand it, it just, right? It just, it's mind blowing. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. It's kind of one of those things. And so Paul prays that those mysteries that, that are revealed to the church, that they also be granted understanding of it, that they understand these, these truths of God and this wisdom that's given them. So that's the first two parts. The next part, it, it, it kind of tags onto it. The next two parts are, be, this is why Paul wants these things to be given to the church, why he wants them to have the wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of God and the understanding of it. He says, so that it can really grasp the hope it has in and through Jesus. You know, he says specifically that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And it's, it's the hope we have in Jesus. I mean, nothing gets more exciting than that, that, that we have a hope that can't be destroyed. That's why we want the wisdom. That's why we want the knowledge. That's why we followed you, so we can have hope. And the hope is then a restored relationship with God. And our ultimate hope is, is knowing that we spend eternity, we have eternal life, that we spend eternity with God in the restored and reunited universe, that heaven and earth become one, the earth is remade. And it's, it's, it's what God initially created his universe to be. And we get to be there forever. 
being God's people in this place he created for us in his direct presence. Like, what more hope do you need? Like, that's it. He wants us to understand these things so that we can grasp that and hold on to it and cherish it and make it a part of our lives and let our decisions and our actions and the reasons why we do what we do be tied directly to that hope. And the world tells you a very different message. The world's very pessimistic. You know, if you ask the world for advice, if you ask the world about what direction things are heading in, it's all negative. I'm not saying things are peachy keen jelly bean, but I'm saying ultimately our hope is, is, is looking good every day. doesn't change. It's our job to make things better here on this earth and try to, you know, do our part to be God's hands and feet. And we're going to look at that a lot in this letter, but our hope doesn't change no matter what this world throws at us, no matter what kind of mess it, it works itself into. So let's keep going. The last part of this prayer it says, so that week the church can really grasp the power God uses for it and works through it. So this is the other reason why Paul is praying that the church has this information and has an understanding of it. You know, he says, and what immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Think about this in terms of a microscope or a telescope. You know, you you can go get a, a camera off the shelf nowadays. It doesn't even have to be anything fancy or extremely expensive. Put it on a tripod, point it at the moon, and just push the zoom button, and you can see an insane amount of details. Like the amount of detail that guys in the Middle Ages like Galileo and whatnot would have given their right arm to see about the moon. Just push the button and there it is. You can get a telescope for nothing and see Mars. You can get a microscope for really cheap and you can see cells. You can see parts of cells. Stuff that regular people can afford to buy. But all those things aren't there with the naked eye. And if they're not there with the naked eye, unless you had a telescope or a microscope, you're only believing them that they're there because of faith. Because you accept somebody told you. Until you get a microscope or a telescope... You don't know for sure, do you? See, God's power is kind of like that. It's around us. It's always there. But most of us are like a blind man walking in the park on a beautiful sunny day in, in the most gorgeous park in the world and saying, this park is dark and ugly. I can't see it. God's power is always there for us to see. We just have to zoom in. We have to look for it. We have to pay attention to it. The more we zoom, the more we see. God's power was displayed perfectly for us through the cross. You know, it's, it's something that, that, that was, was there for the church. And we're going to look at that in this next section. But the thing about the cross is it's proof of God's power. And what I mean by that is, is no action of man can stop God's power. If God sets his, his mind to do something, to accomplish something, no one can stop it. You know, they, they literally tried to kill Jesus and he didn't stay dead. That's the proof of God's power is there's nothing that can stop, not even death. And so that brings us to the last part of this, this prayer that we're, we're looking at today. It's uh, in verses 20 through 23. He says this, he says, he did all these things, this power, this immeasurable power, 
It, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we already said that, that God's power was perfectly displayed at Jesus' resurrection. And then he says that this power continued on and it did a few other things. Uh, it did a lot of things, right? But this, it, Paul lists a few here. He says that it placed Jesus on the throne at God's right hand in heaven. That in God's part of creation, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, ruling all of creation. And it says that he placed all rulers and powers and authorities under Jesus's domain, under his authority. He is king over all now. And it's the language here, it's it's very obvious and would have been obvious to the first century readers. He's not just talking about human authorities and powers. He's talking also about supernatural ones, that every power and authority in existence is under, under Jesus. And then the last thing he says is he placed Jesus as the head of the church, now, this is essentially another summary of, of the Colossian letter, that, that Jesus is above all, he's sufficient, he dominates all, he is king of all, he rules all, his death and resurrection covers all, he's, he's, he's sufficient in all things. But what I want to focus on is this idea that Jesus is going to, that, that Paul is going to, to carry through the rest of this letter, that Jesus is the head of the church. You know, remember that this section, these first three chapters are about Jesus being God's tool to accomplish reunification or unification, depending on how you view it, of the universe that's so divided. And so he says, you know, it's it, Jesus is the head of the church, and so he is going to be the one that does that. And he did that. Now, the way you need to think about this is like a doctor discovering a cure for cancer. You know, the doctor discovers it, it's amazing, it's wonderful, but it, it doesn't just automatically cure all cancer everywhere. He has to share that cure, he has to train other doctors on how to use that cure, and it has to be distributed. See, the world is disunited, that is the cancer, that every part of creation is disunited, it's divided. Uh, man amongst himself, so there's a war between doing the right thing and the wrong thing within us, God and creation, there's separation there because of sin, humanity and nature, there's separation there, we're at war, we have to, you know, we, nature struggles against man and man against nature, that, that, that there's a struggle in the supernatural realm between good and evil, that, that everything is divided, that's the cancer, and the cure is Jesus, Jesus reunites everything that he paid for all sin, that everything is once and for all united, and it will be once and for all after Judgment Day. But he says that Jesus chooses to carry that task out, that reuniting task through the church. That literally God's plans for the world are in the hands of the church. Let that sink in, that you and I, part of Christ's body, Jesus is expecting us to be his hands and feet and mouth to the world, to carry out this task of sharing the good news, of, of, of reuniting the world, of ending division within the world. It's in our hands. 
We should be taking it pretty seriously. We shouldn't be taking it lightly or making it just part of our life. It should be the goal of our lives because it's, it's the point of creation. It's the reason we exist. Now, here's the thing. The, the church throughout history has made a few mistakes on their understanding of this. And I just want to kind of mention them quickly as we wrap up. A body doesn't move of its own accord. My hand is only doing this because my brain is telling it to. I'm talking because my brain is telling me to talk. The words that come out of my mouth, for the most part, are the ones that my brain is telling them to say. A body doesn't do anything without the brain or the head controlling it. The church does what Jesus tells it to do. A hand that doesn't do what the head controls is useless. You know, a leg that doesn't walk the way that the head wants it to is useless. We have to be in step. We have to be in line. We have to be under the control of Jesus and being absolutely 100% focused on making sure that we are being the church that Jesus wants us to be, that we are loyal to him and to his truths that we, we know where the line is that we do not cross, but that we are acting in love, the same love that he showed to us, that we are showing to others. We have to be like literally religious about making sure we don't violate either of those two things. And the other side of it is a body has no authority outside of the head. And what I mean by that is, is the church does not bear Jesus' authority in the world. We don't speak for Jesus. We don't make commands for Jesus. Jesus makes commands for Jesus. Jesus speaks for Jesus. We are just supposed to be his body. We are supposed to be the ones carrying out his will. We are not his authority. And so it's it's not our job to, to speak hate or, or to speak uh, to, to, to make rulings on things. It's our job to be his hands and feet and show love and compassion in truth to the world around us. And so next week we're going to be looking at one of the most famous verses in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm really excited to dig into this. So I hope you come back next week. Um, it's going to be really exciting and hopefully really, really encouraging, which I think everybody could use a little bit of right now. Hopefully you enjoyed this. Uh, and until next week, I'll see you then.